Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our digital campus and our Wednesday night Bible study broadcast. My name is Stephen, and you have joined Newark United Pentecostal Church on our digital campus. Welcome to all of you that normally come. You know the rigmarole. You know how it works. For those of you that are first-time guests, we welcome you, and we invite you to investigate more about us at NewarkUPC.info. And uh, there's all kinds of things you can find out about us there. We encourage you to do so. We currently are meeting only on our digital campus, and so our website becomes critical during this season. Now, that is drawing to a close. If you listen to Brother Arash, it's very soon. Well, let me let me explain to you a, a Middle Eastern view of very soon. It's a couple more months, folks, okay? I told you July, August, it's going to take us a little bit of time, but things are progressing. And uh, the ceiling, as I mentioned to you, I believe it was last week I showed you, the, the ceiling work has been done and is gorgeous. The sanctuary now is almost completely painted, just a few touch-up places. Um, bathrooms are in the midst of renovation right now. In fact, that's why I was a little late getting ready for this broadcast, because we were actually looking at and dealing with a couple of broke toilets. Exciting things when you renovate a uh, 25, 30-year-old building. But Carpet is set to be uh, installed at the end of June, and uh, pew chairs are being delivered middle of July, and so lots of exciting things. So yes, from the perspective of having begun this pandemic and moving off of our physical campus in March of 2020, then yes, we are almost, we're almost there. But from the perspective of how much time is left, well, we've got a couple of months here. So everybody keep being patient. Let me also mention to you that we need to talk about our parking lot. And so in order to do that, because that's an expensive bill, we need to have uh, your involvement as members. So if you're a member of Newark United Pentecostal Church, you need to mark your calendar one week from today. In other words, next Wednesday night, June 2nd, we will be meeting not online like this, but rather on our Zoom link. And uh, you should have already received an email. There's also a card on our guess what, webpage, newarkupc.info. So all of you that are tired of me saying that and all the others that are members, well, this particular case, you need to go there. Uh, your Zoom link information is there and we need you to come on there. We will present to you, uh, take any questions, basic questions as best we can on Zoom, and then you'll have an opportunity that night to uh, cast your vote, yes or no, uh, for us replacing our parking lot. So lots to do. A lot's happening, um, but I want you to be aware of that. We need to announce that, and so we'll continue to announce that over the next week. All right, so tonight we are in the midst of a series uh, entitled Salvation is a Process. And um, if you thought salvation was a destination, and, uh, and so you had all of these check marks, if you will, or milestones, and then once you got those checked off, boom, you've made it. Well, salvation is a destination in the sense that when time has ended, when the earth and the heavens have been destroyed and recreated and heaven has been come into existence, then that's the destination, yes. But between now and then, the now but not yet concept of the scriptures calls us into a relationship with God, and that relationship involves process. We don't like process. God doesn't seem to be bothered by it. And so when you study the New Testament in particular, the early Christians, they you see them repenting of their sins. You see them being baptized in the wonderful name of Jesus. And, uh, and you see them being filled with the Holy Ghost. And then, if you keep reading, you will find that they still struggled. So the new birth experience that, that ushers in this relationship with God, you'd think that, that fixes everything, right? Boom. Everything's the way it's supposed to be. But that's not really the case. God has given us the gift of repentance, and we're called to repent, or as Paul puts it, to die daily for a reason. And the reason is, is because we have to keep repenting until he comes, because we are not yet perfect, and we will not be made perfect until we reach heaven. And I, I encourage all of you to understand something, and I mean this with all due respect. I don't mean any disrespect to people. But if a preacher or a teacher tells you that they have ceased to struggle with sin, they lie. 
and the truth is not in them. Now, don't take my word for it. Go and read the epistle of John. He says, A, you shouldn't sin. B, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus. And C, if you say that you do not sin, you lie and the truth is not in you. You go and read it. Read it for yourself. I'm not the one that made that up. So the reality is God hates sin, loves us, and knows that we're in a process of being set free from that sin. Paul puts it this way at the end of Romans. So then I, with my mind, I serve the law of God while my flesh, my broken nature, is still rendered under the law of sin. And so thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Amen. And so I'm thankful for God. I'm thankful for our advocate. I'm thankful for the spirit of God living within me. And I'm thankful for forgiveness. In fact, it's the one thing that will cut you off from forgiveness if you will not forgive others. Jesus said it explicitly. Unless you forgive, you will not be forgiven. And the reason is, is because he knows that we are broken and he knows that we need forgiveness. I point you one before I turn to my topic tonight, I point you to one more parable or one more story. Jesus told of a publican and a Pharisee and the Pharisee stood and it, it looked pretty good for the Pharisee. He had it all together and he's praying to God and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like that broken down sinner over there. I'm thankful that I'm not like that publican. Lord, I tithe. I give him my offerings. And by the way, we appreciate you giving. We appreciate you partnering with us in giving, but that's not going to buy you heaven. He says, I tithe and I, 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 I'm faithful to the synagogue. I do all the commandments. And, and meanwhile, the publicans across the way and he's like, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus looked at the, <laughs> at the audience, which was probably full of Pharisees as well as others. And he said, now, which one do you think went home right with God? And the answer that Jesus gave might surprise you. It was not the Pharisee. It was the publican. You see, God is not looking for those of us that have it together. God is looking for us that know we don't have it together and are willing to humble ourselves in repentance. And that initiates the process of salvation that God is able to do. Now, tonight we're going to take a look at the early church. And we're going to take a look at a story that kind of illustrates how that even after repentance and even after baptism and even after the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the power of God that comes with that, Christians still struggle, and we we struggle with our humanity, and we struggle with our preferences, and we struggle with our culture. Uh, and I'm not just talking about now; I'm talking about then. And uh, so, I hope you can take some solace in the fact that if you're struggling with your preferences, if you're struggling with your culture, if you're struggling with your opinions, and and how you feel towards your brother or your sister or your fellow human, for that matter. Well, you're probably in the right camp because the early Christians did as well. They had trouble as well. So we're going to look at this and, and, and we're going to start with Galatians. Now, before I go anywhere near my text, all right, uh, Sister Erica, I, I want to give a shout out to my tech support. She's in the background running everything for me. And I appreciate it. She was running late today, too. But she gets to eat her snack during the broadcast. So I'm kind of bummed out. I wolfed my meal down. And, and hopefully I'm not going to belch on you tonight. But if I do, you won't smell it. It'll be okay. But she's sitting there. I can see her off in the background just munching away, enjoying herself. But anyway, shout out to Sister Erica. She's going to handle all of my scriptures. She's going to stay on point with it. And uh, I, I'm going to bounce around. And so if a scripture doesn't go up at the exact right point, please, it's not her fault. It's because I went and called an audible and I shifted where I was going. Because this is a story that I know very well. And I tend to hop, skip and jump around. And I've got to be aware of the time. Uh, this is a Bible study, but we do end in an hour. And I do want to leave time for you to ask questions. But I may go a little past 730. So hang with me. I'm going to try to not talk too fast, but at the same time, stay on point. So we're going to look at Galatians first. Now, here's something that many of you may not realize, or maybe you've heard it before, and I need to remind you. Galatians represents one of the earliest letters written by the Apostle Paul. Now, when we look at the New Testament, we don't think of Galatians being one of the earliest writings of the New Testament. We typically think of the Gospels. And in one sense, you're right, because the Gospels are about the beginning of the New Testament, namely uh John the Baptist, and then Jesus, the Messiah that he was coming before, and their story. But the problem is, is that story was not written down first. The early Christians didn't write the stories down. They told the stories. They were oral, just as we are, really, honestly. Think about it. <clears throat> we spend a lot more time talking than we do writing, and only when some time goes by do we start to write. And when you remember that the 
the New Testament audience was largely illiterate, well, then writing it down didn't make a whole lot of sense either because most of the people couldn't read it. So what you would do is you would tell the stories. And so the stories of Jesus were told orally, and the first writings of the New Testament were actually pastoral letters. They were letters written by people who had started a church but could not get back to that church physically, and so they would write a letter. And while the whole church couldn't read the letter, somebody there could read it, and so they would send the letter, and then that one or two literate people, they would read the letter to the rest of the church that was illiterate, and they could hear from that pastor. And when you recognize that one of the earliest missionaries, in fact, the most influential missionary of all time, the Apostle Paul, established many churches, and he was not able to get to them or be with them on a consistent basis. In fact, it would be years between visits. So Galatians is, by most biblical scholars, believed to be the earliest uh, letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And when you understand that these letters written by people like Paul were the earliest writings of the New Testament, Galatians sits as one of the earliest writings of the New Testament. And so the reason that we're going to start there tonight is because this is the earliest testimony to what's happening. Now, Galatians is largely about circumcision, and so it's a theological letter. It's writing to the churches of Galatia, and Paul's trying to get them to realize that they are saved by Christ and not by the works of the law, namely circumcision. But in the midst of this, in dealing with this topic, Paul tells a little bit of his story. And so I'm going to pick up in Galatians chapter 2 and begin with verse 1. And, and for sake of time, there's a little bit before in chapter 1. You can go back and read that. But I, I want to read to you this little section here of Galatians chapter 2 because you're going to see a New Testament church that has humanity, that's struggling with culture and preferences, and they're struggling to be true to the gospel. So the Apostle Paul says, then after 14 years. Now, then after. All right, so then is referring to something, which is actually in chapter one. And I'm simply going to tell you that it's either the Apostle Paul spending his time in Tarsus before he goes to Antioch, or more likely, it is actually that time period plus him going to Antioch, as we learn in Acts chapter 13, and then being separated from the church at Antioch to go on his first missions trip. And as he would do, he would return from a missions trip and he would report to the church at Antioch. And so after that first missions trip, um, somewhere in there, that missions trip was probably in these 14 years. We're told that he goes up to Jerusalem again with Barnabas, taking Titus along too. Now, why is Titus important? Well, Titus was a Greek. Okay, so this means that either Titus is from Antioch or from one of the other places that Paul has already gone and done missionary work. And so he takes Titus along. And this is why I would argue that when Paul goes to Jerusalem in Galatians chapter 2, Paul has already had his Damascus Road experience. He's already spent time in the in the in the Damascus or in the Arabian Desert and he's already returned to Damascus. He's already gone to Jerusalem. He's already gone to Tarsus and he's already gone on a missions trip with Barnabas. And they're coming to Jerusalem. Now, verse 2, he says I went there because of a revelation and presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. So you can already tell that he's preaching the gospel among the Gentiles. But I did so only in a private meeting with the influential people to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So he basically says, I went up to Jerusalem to double check that everything was cool, that, that what I was preaching was, was okay. Verse number three tells us that Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, although he was a Greek. So this is an important point to recognize is that Titus, a Greek, went with Paul and Barnabas up to Jerusalem, which was a church that was filled with Hellenized Jews, Jews from the diaspora, but it was also filled with Jews from Palestine, and many of them were converts from the priesthood and from the Pharisees. And these were people who really liked to obey the law. They were very proud to be Jews. They were a lot like Paul before the Damascus Road experience. But Paul says, when I went in, and when I checked my gospel, that which I was preaching, even Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. Verse four, he says, now this matter, this whole matter, it, and I'm assuming here it's probably circumcision, because that seems to be the topic of Galatians. 
And it seems to be the topic that he references here in verse three. So he says, this matter, I'm going to insert of circumcision, arose because of the false brothers with false pretenses who slipped in unnoticed to spy on our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus to make us slaves. What's it, slaves to what? Well, Paul would say slaves to the law. He goes on, he says, but we did not surrender to them. These, these false brethren, we did not surrender to them even for a moment in order that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were influential, whatever they were, makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism between people. So Paul's kind of flexing his muscles here and saying, you know, I don't really care if they're influential or not. Those influential leaders added nothing to my message. So Paul says, what I was preaching, they didn't correct me. Then verse 7, he says, on the contrary, when they saw that I was entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter was to the circumcised, for he who empowered Peter for his apostleship to the circumcised also empowered me for my apostleship to the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who had a reputation as pillars, recognized the grace that had been given to me, they gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship, agreeing that we would go to the Gentiles and they would go to the circumcised. They requested only that we remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. Then there's a break between verse 10 and verse 11. Paul kind of jumps some gap of time because he says, then when Cephas came to Antioch. So remember, Paul's base is Antioch. He's come to Jerusalem and then he's gone ostensibly back to Antioch. And Peter, known as Cephas, came to Antioch also. The scripture, Paul writes and says, I opposed Peter, Cephas, to the face because he had clearly done wrong. What had Peter done wrong? Okay, now first I want you to note that you have correction going on between two Christian brothers. So if you're looking for life to work in this Christian walk, that there's never any conflict, you received the Holy Ghost, you got baptized, you repented of your sins, and everything is just hunky-dory, I got newsflash for you, that's not how it works. Peter and Paul had conflict. He opposes him face because Peter's done something wrong. Well, what has he done wrong? Well, Paul's happy to tell us. Verse number 12, he says, until certain people came from James, Peter had been eating with the Gentiles. But when these people from James arrived, he stopped eating with the Gentiles. He separated himself because he was afraid of those who were pro-circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also joined with him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray with them by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not behaving consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, so this is how he was stood into the face, if you, although you are a Jew, live like a Gentile. So in other words, before these men came from Jerusalem, from James, you're sitting there and you're eating with the Gentiles, just like the Gentiles. If you, a Jew, can live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how do you go flipping it when they show up and try to force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Whether that has to do with circumcision or whether it has to do with dietary customs. Now, this is a fascinating story. All right. It's one of the early stories. This is going to be happening. My guesstimate is somewhere in the late 30s and early 40s. All right. This is really early on. Most historians believe the Apostle Paul and Peter were both killed somewhere in the 60s under Emperor Nero. And so this is fairly early on, and I would posit it's probably, it sounds like it's after the first missionary journey, but before Paul has done all of the rest of his missionary journeys, along with imprisonments, along with being arrested and taken to Jerusalem, and then to Caesarea, and then on to Rome, and ultimately beheaded. Uh, if history is correct, beheaded under the Emperor Nero. So this is really early. Uh, this, this represents conflict as the early church tries to figure out, do you have to become a Jew first in order to become a Christian? It's kind of like nowadays, and I'm going to say it. You ready for this? All right. It's kind of like some Christians, and you'll know who you are when, when I say it to you, you're trying to figure out, do they have to be a Republican in order to be a Christian? The answer is no. 
But some of you are struggling with that. And others of you, you're asking the question, do they have to be a Democrat in order to be a Christian? Well, the answer is no, but some of you are struggling with that. Now, here's a real news flash for some of you. Do they have to be, if they're not American, do they have to act American in order to be a Christian? Well, the unequivocal answer is no. But news flash, America's struggling with this because we think we're the cat's meow. We think we're the center of the world. Can I tell you who else thought they were the center of the world? It was the Jews. The Jews considered themselves the cat's meow. Now, Jesus came to this earth and he was a Jew. There's no question about that. But he didn't just come for the Jews. He came for all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, not whosoever that circumcised, not whosoever that doesn't eat pig, no, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, this is why the apostle Paul, when he was Saul, he didn't like this message. He thought it was apostasy and he was willing to persecute. But you know, when you're going down the road and God knocks you off your horse and shines a bright light in your eyes and you can't see and puts scales over your eyes and, and, and makes you walk being led by the hand back into a city that you were going to persecute people in, it has a tendency to make you sit up and listen. And so when, you know, the preacher comes to your house and says, hey, the Lord showed me what happened to you and you're going to be an apostle of his. And, you know, you tend to listen. And so the apostle Paul would not allow his gospel to be anything but believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, just as John captures in John 3.16. And there are actions that follow, but those actions don't include a whole lot of the cultural norms and expectations that the Jews, well, they were kind of proud of. They had died for them for many years. And some of you are kind of proud of your culture, too. And, and you're really excited about what nation you're a part of or what party you belong to or your opinions or what you think is right or what you think is wrong. And I got to break some news to you. God's less impressed by our culture than we are. Because God is the God of all of humanity. And the gospel breaks down the barriers. It doesn't create barriers. I think many of you would be shocked at what Jesus would say if he showed back up here and you tried to press him to ensnare him in Caesar's business. <laughs> I think you would be surprised at how quickly he would look at you and ask for a coin and it would have George Washington's head on it or it would have Abraham Lincoln's head on it or it would have some other. And he'd say, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But let's take our, our orientation back towards God. And let's render to God what is God's. Well, the early Christians struggled with this. So the fact that you and I are struggling with this is not a surprise. We shouldn't be surprised because salvation is a process. Okay. I remember when I first took the American flag out of the church, there were some of our elders and I love them that they were quite vexed with me. How dare you dishonor our military? Well, first of all, I'm not dishonoring our military. Do you all fly a flag in your living room? Uh, do you all fly a flag on your front porch? Do you all fly a flag in your car? I mean, do you all fly a flag on your on your on your computer? I mean, how far does this go? I'm not dishonoring our military to remove the flag. Well, why are you removing it? Because the church is not an American church. The church is God's church. Every nation, every creed, every tongue, and I don't want those who come from other nations of origin to walk into the church and immediately the first thing they see is the image of the American flag. Because guess what? The American flag has done many good things in the world, but the American flag has also flown over some atrocities that have happened in the world. We do not mire the church in the affairs of the world. Jesus said, if my kingdom were of this world, Pontius Pilate, then would my servants fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. Therefore, my servants do not fight. All right. So this is reality. Now, here's the good news. If you're struggling with this, if you're trying to figure out your patriotism or your culture or your preferences vis-a-vis -vis the church, you're in the same place that they were. Peter was struggling with this. Paul was struggling. With this. They were all struggling with it. Now, here's the big question. When did this happen? Like this whole showdown, Paul going to Jerusalem and preaching, sharing his gospel with some members of the church there and them not adding anything to it, not even requiring Titus to be circumcised. And, and then going back to Antioch, everything seems fine. And, and then Peter comes back and 
something happens because somebody comes from James, the same James that had not added anything to the gospel that he was preaching. Somebody comes back from James and suddenly Peter's got to withdraw and Barnabas gets caught up in it too. Well, what's happening here? When is this? Now, lots of folks want to go and figure out where this is. And of course, the only other place, because most of Paul's letters are theological. They don't tell us biographical or stories like this. In fact, Galatians is one of the few that gives us details like this. Where do we find details about the early church? Well, there was an author who wrote much later. His name was maybe Luke. I don't know. We call him Luke because he wrote a two-part series. First part was the Gospel of Luke. The second part was the Book of Acts. So the Book of Acts tells the story of the church. And in the Book of Acts, we find the Apostle Paul going to Jerusalem several times. Well, we know it's not later, okay, because we can tell it's after many missionary journeys, and none of what we're seeing in Galatians chapter 2 is showing up there. Now, some want to redeem this and make Luke and Paul not be in tension. So they want to make it that it was earlier. But I would submit to you that tonight, and I'm going to read to you portions of it because time's getting away from me, so i got to keep moving. I would argue to you that what Paul describes in the first part of Galatians chapter 2 before Peter goes to Antioch and is rebuked by Paul, is actually the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. So let me jump in there real quick. And here, Erica, I apologize. You might have to put your snackies down for a little bit to stay with me because I'm going to be hopping around a little bit because I got I got to redeem a little bit of time. Y'all going to need to read a little bit on your own, okay? So Acts chapter 15, verse 1 says, Now some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. When Paul and Barnabas had a major argument and debate with them, the church, and if you read the context, that's the Antioch church, appointed Paul and Barnabas and some others from among them to go up to meet with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this point of disagreement. Now, if you remember what I read to you from Galatians, this is sounding pretty similar, right? Paul says, I go up to share my gospel. And the reason that I'm going is because these men came in and they inserted themselves and they, they tried to change the gospel. So they went on their way. They, they went with the church and they arrived in Jerusalem. I'm skipping three and four real quick. So they arrive at Jerusalem and they're received by who? The apostles and the elders. Verse number four, and they report all that God has done with them. So it sounds like after the missionary journey. Then, verse 5, but some of the religious party of the Pharisees who had believed stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to order them to observe the law of Moses. Now, the apostles and elders met together to deliberate about this matter. So this is sounding like Galatians 2. After much debate, Peter stands up and says, brothers, you know that some time ago God chose me to preach to the Gentiles so they would hear the message of the gospel and believe. All right. And so he, he goes on about how God knows the heart. He's testified by giving them the Holy Spirit. He's not making a distinction between them. He's cleansing their hearts by faith. And then Peter in verse number 10. So now why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? And then he makes this very strong statement that he's already made in, in Acts 10 and Acts 11. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are. So what's absent? Circumcision. So the scripture then says the whole group kept quiet. Barnabas and Paul explain the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So this is at the very least what he's done in Antioch, but it's more likely what he's done through the first missionary journey also. Then James. James speaks up. Now, this is not James of James and John, but rather this is James, the brother of the Lord, the brother of Jesus, who for some reason, we don't understand why, was the bishop of Jerusalem. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has explained how God first concerned himself to select from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. And he says, therefore, I conclude, verse 19, Erica, I'm jumping for sake of, of time there, verse 19, therefore, I conclude, so he goes through an argument and he says, therefore, I conclude that we should not cause extra difficulty for those among the Gentiles who are turning to God. All right. But that we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from things defiled by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For Moses has had those who proclaim him in every town from ancient times because he has read aloud in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now, let's pause there. Here's what's interesting. Remember Galatians 2? Paul said, 
They did nothing except remember the poor. That's all they asked. They added nothing to my gospel. But Luke presents us here that they added a little bit. They asked them to abstain from idolatry. They asked them to abstain from sexual immorality. But they also asked them to abstain from things strangled and from blood. Now, you may not recognize those two terms, but those two terms there about things strangled and from blood, those are dietary laws. That goes right to what Paul says he withstands Peter for because the Gentiles did not practice this. And this is why the Jews would not eat with them. It wasn't just that they ate pigs. They didn't kill their animals the way the Jews thought they should. And they ate blood from the meat rather than properly draining the blood and thereby not eating blood in the meat. Ah, so which happened? Now, here's what I think. I believe Luke, either himself, is trying to paint a picture where everybody's in agreement. He's trying to kind of gloss over an area of conflict. Or it's possible that time has gone by and Luke doesn't know the full story. But isn't that kind of interesting? While Luke may not have known the whole story, God preserved another piece of the story, another perspective, another angle in the letter of Paul. I believe both have to be brought into conversation with one another. But most scholars, and I am one of them, believe that really what James said was, I conclude that we should not cause extra difficulty for those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, period. Just like Peter, don't lay on them the yoke of being Jewish. And this is what Paul says in Galatians. They didn't add anything. They only asked us to remember them that were poor to take up an offering. And if you read through Paul's letters, he does this. He, in fact, collects an offering. And you can read in the book of Acts that he brings that back to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem church. In fact, the Jerusalem church at that time was very poor and were even known by the name Ebionim, which actually means the poor ones. And uh, so Paul remembers that. So what happened here? Well, here's what a lot of scholars think, that Luke, either due to choice or his sources, he conflates James' first decision and James' second decision. And that the letter that we're reading about here, and I'm going to leave you to read the rest of it, okay? The letter that is read here that is taken by Judas called Barsabas, that's verse 22, and Silas to Antioch, actually came later. So the idea is, is that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are at, at Jerusalem. Nothing's added to their gospel. They go back to Antioch, and maybe later, or maybe even at the same time, Peter goes with them. And everything's going well. But then James feels pressure by his culture. And James says, you know what? Maybe we could ask a little bit of bending from them. We'll just ask them for four things. We'll ask them not to be idolatrous. We'll ask them not to be sexually immoral, which obviously both of those are not a problem. But then we're going to ask that they not eat things that are strangled and they not eat things that still have the blood in it. Uh, we're going to ask them to accommodate our culture. Now, so they bring this, they send this letter, and I'm not going to read it to you. You can read this through chapter 15, and they send this letter to them, and, um, and they go to Antioch. So the letter arrives, and according to Luke, when the letter's read aloud, people rejoice at its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were prophets themselves, verse 32, uh, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with a long speech. Verse 33, after they had, of chapter 15, after they had spent some time there, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. Verse 35, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming, with many others, the word of the Lord. Now, here's the funny thing. Do you remember Galatians 2? Paul withstands Peter to the face because he's wrong, because he's gotten caught up based on a letter based on men coming from James, and even Barnabas got caught up in this. So verse 36 says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's return and visit the brothers in every town where we proclaim the word of the Lord to see how they were doing. Barnabas wanted to bring John called Mark along with them too, but Paul insisted that they should not take along this one who had left them in Pamphylia and had not accompanied them in the work. They had a sharp disagreement so that they parted company. 
So the disagreement about whether John Mark should go with them parts these two missionaries who have suffered great persecution and great trial. You can read about it earlier in Acts as they did their first missionary journey. They just had a disagreement over whether the boy John Mark goes with them. I think Luke either is missing or has left out a piece of the story. Scripture says Barnabas took along Mark and sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and set out, commended to the grace of the Lord by the brothers and sisters. And he passed through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And by the way, Syria and Cilicia is where he had gone in the first missionary journey. So what do I think is going on here? What I think is going on here is actually the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 2 that there were those who wanted the early Christians to both by circumcision and by dietary customs to first be Jews before they could be Christians. And this is precisely what was preached to the Galatian churches and why Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians, telling them that it's the gospel of Christ, the believing in Christ alone that saves them, not the obedience to the law. In trying to defend this to the Galatians, he tells them that he went to Jerusalem before to deal with these Christians who insisted you had to be a Jew first, both by circumcision and by dietary customs before you could become a Christian. And he says, I took this to the Jerusalem church and they did not require it of me. But later those others came from James and they did require it. And Peter got caught up in it and Barnabas got caught up in it. And I would not bend. I would submit to you that what split Paul and Barnabas apart as missionaries was not John Mark. Yes, I'm sure John Mark was a part of the discussion. But what split them apart was that Barnabas wanted to accommodate just a little bit. Just as Peter was trying to accommodate the cultural demands. And Paul, who when it came to the Jewish culture, was a Jew above Jews, a Pharisee above Pharisees, more zealous than all his peers, more studied than anyone. Paul said, guys, you got to understand, I ran into this dude on the road to Damascus and he knocked me on my keister and he blinded my eyes and he told me that I was wrong. I'm not going to make this mistake again. And so we have in this historical story between the letter of Galatians, which is the earlier writings, and then a later story it's preserved by the author of Luke Acts in the book of Acts. You have all the pieces of what looks like early Christians struggling with culture and preference. They were in process. The same guy who stands in Cornelius's house and offers salvation because God is no respecter of persons, now suddenly cannot sit and eat. And remember, the meal when you ate in the early Christian church was where you also shared communion. So by Peter withdrawing from the table, he was not just refusing to eat pizza. He was refusing to share the Lord's Supper with the Antioch church that was a mix of Jews and Gentiles. Paul said, not having it. And he stood against it. You see, when I speak strong words to the church about how we handle ourselves with regard to culture, when I speak strong words to you about your political opinions and tell you, you have a right to your political opinions, but they must stop. They cannot come past the threshold of your brotherhood and sisterhood within the church. When I challenge us, where's the chapter and verse, as Missionary Phelps challenged the Nigerian church with, and we challenge ourselves, where's the chapter and verse? Well, that's just the way it's always been, or that's the way it makes sense to me. Well, it doesn't matter whether it makes sense to you. It doesn't matter whether that's the way it's always been. Chapter and verse. Because we are in a process and the process is God calling us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You're allowed to have your opinions, but you don't get to preach them as gospel. You're allowed to vote your conscience, but you don't get to preach it as gospel. You're allowed to have your medical opinions, but you don't get to preach it as gospel. 
you're allowed to have your music preferences, but you don't get to preach it as gospel. <laughs> we all are allowed to have opinions, but I must value my brother or my sister more than myself. I must not be caught up in this. And so for me, now there are many, when I teach this, I get in all kinds of trouble. And by the way, questions should be rolling. I hope that you put that up. Yep, Erica's got it. So I'm sure there's some questions coming. Um, but I get in trouble because there's a lot of folks that go, Steve, you're, you're making it look like the church was was, was not in agreement. And you're, you're making it look like the Bible isn't speaking truth. Actually, I think the Bible was speaking truth. Have you ever been in a room and seen a conflict and then got out of that room and heard somebody tell what they saw in the room and you were in the room and they weren't lying, but they weren't telling the whole story because it's how they saw it? Well, that's what happened here. And God craftily allowed us to see two different vantage points. Whatever Luke, the author of Luke Acts, was using, whatever his sources were, painted a picture that kind of glossed over things. That kind of said, hey, everybody was in agreement on this. But over in Paul's letter in Galatians, it doesn't look like he was in agreement. And when you read later in Acts, you find that he wasn't in agreement. He would not allow anything to be added to the gospel. Now, my point tonight is to recognize that culture and preferences, those are my two key points, culture and preferences, culture and preferences are the areas that constantly try to assert themselves and cause division within the body. And we as Christians got to allow the process of salvation to release us from those to value one another on the basis of the word of God and the gospel alone. And we must constantly be pressing back against our own culture and our own preferences. I'll close with this and then take some questions. I've done a fair amount of travel on the missions field and we do amazing work in the missions field. The gospel is spread around the world, but you know where the problem areas are? It's when we went there and we preached our culture instead of the gospel. And we never replaced the gospel, but a lot of times we would preach our culture right alongside of the gospel. And you'll find these weird things going on that make absolutely no sense. Like I heard of one preacher one time preaching in an African country against television. All right. Now, there's lots of bad things about, you know, that were on television. There's lots of important scripture that understand what you're looking at. And it's important that we guard our eyes. But it was kind of didn't make a whole lot of sense to preach against television in this African country since the African country didn't have electricity. Last time I checked, the television doesn't work without electricity. You don't have communications. What was going on there? Our culture, our struggle, our areas, we suddenly began to elevate them. We began to put them right next to the truth of the gospel. And we have to resist that. It's absolutely mandatory that we resist that. All right. I know I took a little bit more time. I tried to go as fast as I could without leaving anybody behind. There's a lot more. I normally take about three hours to unpack this, but obviously I didn't have time. Um, so questions. Erica, why don't you come on and join me? And uh, let's see if, if we've got some questions or if I just left everybody in the dust. I think you left everybody in the dust. There's no questions. There's no questions? Oh, come on. You people have got to have some questions. All right. So, all right. So I will, while you are all collecting your thoughts a little bit, let me, let me, I'll add a few little details that I kind of hop, skipped and jumped around real quick. So first of all is um, there's no question that what we see in Galatians chapter two occurs sometime in the story of the early church. So you have to draw a conclusion of either what you're seeing there is not chronicled at all in the book of Acts. So that's one conclusion that some scholars would say it doesn't. You can't find this example. Second, it's a different spot. And so there is this one spot in chapter 11. If you look uh, that the Apostle Paul, I think it's chapter 11. It might be chapter 14 um, where he comes down and, and actually takes food, takes money to the Jerusalem church during a famine. So some people want to try to, to make those two match uh, what he describes in Galatians chapter two match with that occasion. It just doesn't make sense to me because none of the, the circumstances are not the same. The details are not the same. 
And when I look at Galatians chapter 2, and I realize that what's at front and center is there are some people who want the Gentiles to be circumcised. And the conflict between Peter and Paul is over food. This is sure looking an awful lot like the discussion that's happening in Acts 15. And even if you say that what is in Galatians 2 doesn't match Acts 15, and it's another occasion, you still have to recognize that what Paul describes as the agreement of the Jerusalem church with him in preaching the gospel to the Gentiles does not match with Acts 15. There's not this request to abstain from things slaughtered or from blood. And so I would argue that what is going on here, and most scholars agree with this, that what is going on here is that there is a conflict going on about food and more importantly about ceremonial cleanliness, which is a Jewish cultural item. It meant something about separating the people, but now in the New Testament, through the cross, the, the rending of the veil from top to bottom, the gospel is now available to all, to any who will believe. And so that, along with circumcision, this identifier of God's chosen people, has clearly been set aside. If you don't believe me on the food, there was a great, I forget who did the lesson. Erica, you might be able to help me, but one of our speakers over the last couple of weeks did a great lesson about uh, Peter and Cornelius. I think it might have been Meg uh, about Peter and Cornelius, but I can't remember who it was. I, I apologize. It may not have been Meg. It may have been. Oh, I know who it was. I apologize. It was last week. It was Joyce um, where Peter is told repeatedly by a vision to rise and kill and eat these animals that are unclean. So if Paul really, excuse me, if Jesus really had a problem and wanted Gentiles to eat like the Jews, he would have never said what he did in Acts chapter 10 to Peter about going to Cornelius' house. All right, so we got a question. How did the Gentiles slaughter their animals? Oh, there's a lot of different ways. One of them, for instance, would be that they would they would sacrifice their animals by first uh, bonking them upside the head. Okay, they'd have a sledgehammer and bonk them upside the head. And then they would, instead of hanging them upside down where all of while the animal is still alive and cutting their throat where the, the blood would, the heart would keep pumping for a little while and actually pump the blood out of the body, they would instead just slit it and, the, and, and it wouldn't drain all of the blood. So some of the blood would pool within the body. And so then when you butchered the animal, there would still be blood. And so the Jews had a very specific process. We call it now kosher because it was a very specific process for slaughtering the animal. And it had a lot to do with God's insistence that they understand that the life is in the blood. And I've given you that on the altar. So it's both you're not supposed to eat it and it's supposed to be sacrificed to me. And so the result of that meant that the Gentiles rarely uh, slaughtered things in a way that was kosher. So it was both that the Gentiles ate animals that the Jews did not believe should be eaten. But it was also that they... Um, they didn't slaughter their animals correctly. So they were ceremonially unclean. Is the play is a is the uh, place to teach about unacceptable cultural practices in the church? What is Leela talking about? Start typing, Leela, because I need a little clarity here. I'm going to take a stab at this question, but all right, so unacceptable cultural practices. Okay, first of all, I, okay, I'm going to take a stab, and Erica, you help me out if she types some more to give me a little bit more clarity. First of all, I'm going to go after the word unacceptable. Oh, okay. she said, is there a place to teach about unacceptable culture practices in the church? Is there? Oh, is there a place? Okay, first of all, unacceptable by which terminology? So, if you're dealing with things that are unacceptable by the scriptures, then you're not really, yes, you are running up against culture, but you're actually teaching biblical principles. So the point is, is you're not actually teaching about culture. You're teaching about biblical principles that then impact culture. Everything else, if the Bible doesn't deal with it, either in principle or in application, then it's cultural and you leave it alone. And when we try to use the Bible to enforce what we prefer, we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble. And so my answer is to those things, what are you determining as unacceptable? What's your basis of authority? 
And that's where the problem lies. What's your basis of authority? If something's unacceptable because the scriptures, either in principle or in application, make it unacceptable, then your basis of authority is the word of God as found in scripture. But if it's your preference or how you were raised or your background or your culture, well, you can live by that as long as it doesn't break the scriptures, but you can't compel your brothers or sisters to live by that. Because it's your common ground, your common basis of authority is the word of God, chapter and verse, chapter and verse. And the problem is, is that we are very prone to make the Bible say what we want it to say. <laughs> we have a bad habit of doing that. And uh, there's where, uh, you know, our, our, uh, our admonition from Desi comes in, read slowly. Slow down, read slowly, let the scripture speak. I use the word interrogate the scripture, make the scripture speak. And when the scripture doesn't speak, don't help it out. Don't fill in the gaps. Don't try to help it. Let it speak. And when it's silent, it's silent. Leave it be. All right. Do you think we associate process with learning and not so much with unlearning, even though both are often necessary in this process of salvation? That's a great question, Carolyn, um, because part of learning is is unlearning. Um, it's it's breaking old habits. It's breaking old assumptions. It's letting go of old things. And so, yes, I do think we associate uh, process with learning, but we don't realize that learning is also losing some misinformation, bad information, and we have to be willing to be corrected. Learning is not just affirmative. It's sometimes it's corrective. We all love to be affirmed. We all love the positive, uh, something added. But as you've put it, yes, learning sometimes is God taking something away. With the Apostle Peter, I would argue that that's exactly what Jesus was doing uh, when he he lets the sheet down in the vision. And he says, Peter, I need to teach you something. Uh, this eating thing had a place, but it, it it's not, I'm not concerned with that right now. It's different now. It's been fulfilled. The point of it was to separate you. Now what separates you is the blood of the cross. Uh, it's no longer the sacrifices at the temple. It's my one sacrifice at Calvary. And so there's an unlearning of things like that. And that's where all of us, till the day we die, have got to maintain a humility to allow corrective to be a part of our learning, not just affirmative. Good question. James Littles. Holy cow. Here we go. All right, Jim. What is a good process for disciples to discuss these deep divides? How does this help model reconciliation to the world? Oh, all right. So let's deal with the first question. The second question, he almost uh, lobbed me the softball. So first of all, is that I think it's it's extremely important that we're allowed to discuss when we disagree. I think that is critical to to the process of discipleship. And that's the that is what's critical to our theme this week, that if salvation is a process, if the early Christians who are our model, if you will, our examples, if they were broken, if they struggled with bigotry, if they struggled with their culture and their their ways, then we also should should realize that a it's not the end of the world that we struggle and b we need to struggle. Pauls are going to have to stand up and withstand Peter's to the face. <laughs> OK, um, but there needs to be a process whereby we recognize this. We're not looking for perfection, but rather we're engaging in this process. And that allows then for discussion to occur. Discussion that is polite, discussion that is passionate, but respectful, discussion that is challenging, but maintains commitment one to another. Now, how does this how does this help model reconciliation to the world? Well, here's the deal. If we do not know how to break down barriers of disagreement across cultural lines or across opinion lines, across preference lines, and we say we know the gospel, what shot do we have with a broken world who also struggles? I mean, let's be honest. The world doesn't know how to do this very well either. Okay, we're all broken. That's the problem. But we should at least have a better methodology or a better process to model for them. And unfortunately, at times, Jim, as you and I both know, 
we sometimes are, are, are worse examples than the world. The world sometimes does better than us. And so that's the point of, I believe, this story is to call us, A, be committed to truth and be willing to correct one another, but do so in a manner that does not cause separation. Now, there's a, there's a lot of discussion because you could say, well, Peter and Paul, they must have separated. Well, most scholars think Peter's letter that he, he wrote two letters was written later than many of Paul's letters. And certainly I would, in my timeline, argue that his letter was written later than the Acts 15 council. If that's true, despite the conflict in Antioch, despite Paul withstanding Peter to the face, Peter writes of the Apostle Paul and in fact is the first example in the New Testament in which somebody's writings of the New Testament are called scripture. And guess whose writings are called scripture by Peter? Paul's. Now, I may be reading too much, but I think that this speaks to the fact that they did not separate. They may have had conflict. They may have had disagreement, but there was also a bond of commitment to one another. And I think that comes back to that first question. The process of disagreement, of discussion of deep divides has to carry with it a strong relationship a commitment one to another. And if I can, if you'll allow me a personal note, I very much appreciate with Dr. Littles that relationship. Believe it or not, Stephen Beardsley and James Littles do not see eye to eye on everything. But over the years, we have continued to commit ourselves to a relationship with one another. And I don't just mean that generically, I mean that personally. And there's lots in that story and some of it's private and some of it's public. And But we have committed ourselves to that. And Jim, I think that's the key when we are in real relationship, what breaks this process up is when we are just, we have demonized everyone else and they're at such a distance from us. And this is where social media is horrible because they're at such a distance from us that they almost cease to be human. And so then we just, we just go after them. And so you'll notice that I try very hard that when I'm speaking corrective words, I'm not targeting anyone. I want to speak them generically. I want to speak truth. Because then I'm open. Somebody can come to me and say, I disagree with you. Well, come talk to me. Let's let's talk this out. Let's talk back and forth. And we might even part ways and say, you know what? I still don't agree with you. And, and they say, I still don't agree with you. But we need to part ways in a manner that we still are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're committed to one another. By this shall all men know you are my disciples in that you have total theological agreement with one another. No, that's not what he said. He said, by this shall all men know you are my disciples because you have love one for another. And love is acted out by commitment. Uh, I'm married to my wife and I love her more than I love anybody else. But I don't agree with her all the time. And she drives me batty at times. And we have intense fellowship of disagreement at times. But there's a commitment we made almost 25 years ago. And we haven't broke the commitment. Period. Hope that helps. Thanks for the thanks for the the question, Jim. All right, Jada. Since salvation is a process for all, can God call someone for the world and straight into preaching? Ha! Well, I would argue that he kind of did that with the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul is a persecutor. Now, of course, he had theological training. He was a Jew, etc. But but Jada, the timeline is God's to control. Timeline is God's to control. My brother in the Lord, Brother Stan Seth, I always call him my brother from another mother. Um, he came to the Lord when he was, uh, I'm probably going to have the timeline slightly off, but I believe he was in his in his uh, late 40s or early 50s. Uh, Stan was a business executive. He had been very successful, very educated man. And um, let me just say that Stan's timeline was not your typical timeline of ministry. Why? Because of his human maturity and then because of his seriousness about the gospel and how he, he got to work on it. He no sooner finished the Bible study that taught him, he turned around and said to my dad, I want to sit down with you and now listen to the same Bible study to figure out how to teach it myself. That's a level of maturity that just immediately converted. So my simple answer is God controls the timeline, Jada. Some it takes longer. Others, it seems to move on a fast track. Why do you think it's so hard for the church to admit that they still struggle with sin after being born again? Ah, because we preachers preach it wrong. <laughs> okay. And, and all my dear brothers and sisters out there that are preachers and, and want to get mad at me, well, get mad at me. I don't care. 
um, we preach it wrong. Because what happens is, is we hold out to people. See, it's harder to pastor a church when you tell them that you know that they're broken and that they're going to continue to struggle with brokenness. Because now you have to commit to a process with them as well. So it's easier to whitewash it. It's easier to act like it and teach people to act like it. And the problem is, is we're modeling it ourselves. We preachers won't. We pastors will not look at people and say, I am broken. Well, how can you lead if you're broken? I don't know. Because of the power of God? Because who's really in the head headship is, is, is God, not me. That's why this whole headship doctrine needs to go out the window. Okay? Just telling you that right now. There's only one head. And it ain't the man, it ain't the woman. Yes, I know I'm saying ain't. It, it, it's 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 not any of this. None of us are heads over one another. We are brothers and sisters in submission to Christ. Doesn't mean that I don't have a responsibility within the body as I fulfill my role, but it's only delegated authority. It's not my rightful headship. I don't have control of it. I just act on behalf of Christ and for a season, and then it'll end. So I think. Lila, that's the problem. The reason we struggle to talk about it is because we preachers have gotten ourselves into and pastors have gotten ourselves into a problem where we can't talk about our own struggles. We're not allowed to. So then if we're not allowed to, well, then we're not going to let you. Well, we're broke anyway, so we might as well be honest about it. And it's not that it's okay to be broke. But thanks be to God. He's going to save us. And he's doing so through a process. All right, Erica, we're at 802. Is there any other pressing questions or did I? Did they ever agree? How did the story end? Well, Regina, I tried to tell you that I think they may have stayed in relationship. I don't know if they ever agreed. History tells us that there was still a pocket of Jewish Christians who ultimately aligned themselves with the rebellion over against the Romans, over the temple and over Jerusalem. And then it was not very long after that, that they ceased to exist within history. And so the way I always teach this in early Christian history uh, classes is that they put their culture over the gospel and the result was the gospel carried on in the Gentiles and they ceased to exist. And that's a loss. We should have had more of the Jewish mindset. We may not have had as much of the Trinity show up if we'd have had that Jewish influence stronger. And by the way, ironically, guess when one of the last bastions of oneness, of understanding that God was one and that that one God was born a human, Jesus Christ, that there weren't, there weren't three gods in one, but it was a single, single entity expressed in different manners. Guess where the strongest bastion and the last bastion really existed of that. Rome. And the reason? We most scholars believe that Rome was in fact a heavily Jewish church. That's why Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. It was very Jewish, very use, uses a lot of the Old Testament because it was Jews converted at the day of Pentecost and went back to Rome. So that Jewishness kept them closer to the truth of the gospel with regard to the oneness of God. So we lost something when we lost those Jews. But the problem is, is there were there were large portions of them basically elevated their culture to exist right next to the gospel. So you want to become irrelevant in history? Insist that the gospel is some cultural group or some particular perspective, and you will find that God does not stick with you. You will get left behind. He'll move on because his gospel, it's not of this world. It's meant to change this world, but it's not of this world. Is that it, Erica? Yep, that's, well, there's one more, but I don't know if you want to. Oh, pop it up. Okay. I'm already, I was late. Oh, my goodness, it's my wife. Can you talk a little about the shift or difference between Paul's stance on what we eat doesn't matter to our purity, while also some Christians chose to be killed over such things? Actually, Christians did not choose to be killed over what they ate or didn't eat. They chose to be killed over sacrificing to the imperial cult. So it was actually two different aspects. And interestingly, what they died over had to do with idolatry, standing against idolatry and the imperial cult, the worship of the emperor. The Gentile church did not die over the eating or not eating. It really, that whole problem over what was eaten was really one of the Jewish Christians 
over against the Gentile Christians. And like I said, by the time we hit the second century, it's basically gone. It's no longer there. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you've enjoyed tonight. I hope I didn't go too fast. I know it was a tour de force, and I'm already five minutes over, but I hope you all enjoyed it. Don't forget, next Wednesday night, there is not a broadcast, but instead you need to get on Zoom and join us for our duly called business meeting so we can address our parking lot. All other information about us, you can find at newyorkqpc.info. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. We will be back here tomorrow night. We broadcast six nights a week, Tuesday through Sunday, 7 p.m. And we look forward to seeing you again tomorrow night. God bless everybody. Have a great night. Good night.